Magnus Podcast, episode 23. This is part three of the Father Owen Carroll Project, Being and Loving in St. Thomas. Hey, welcome back to the Magnus Podcast. Very grateful to have you here in a world where everybody has their own podcast. You've got many options to choose from. You've chosen to listen to this one. So we really are grateful and impressed. In fact, Brian shared with me some analytics today, and I was surprised at thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of downloads, 90% from the United States. But this was what was really surprising, 40 other countries making up the last 10% of our listenership. So thank you. Uh, nine of you in Saudi Arabia. So hello. I want to I give a special hello to the nine of you listening in Saudi Arabia and, um, and elsewhere throughout the world. It really is a great honor to have your attention. And we're grateful, uh, especially for what we're about to bring you today. This is part three of the Father Owen Carroll Project And many of you we know are intrigued by who this priest is. If you're looking for a visual, you can sort of imagine the monk. Actually, he's a knight in the third Indiana Jones movie, Guarding the Holy Grail. I know that's what his voice sounds like, but the the visual is not far off. You won't find any pictures of him online, to my knowledge. And that's because even though he's taught theology for 50 years at the university and graduate level, really had dramatic impact on many, many souls doing many things throughout the world now. But he did pray his whole life to remain completely hidden. So as best he could as an academic, he was working at different universities and really rejected any committee appointments or anything like this. Uh, Didn't publish anything, hardly. Uh, and, And in his 90th year of age, in his 90th year of age, we are we are truly grateful and honored that he's given permission for the Albertus Magnus Institute to begin selectively releasing some of his work to the public. And that includes these first three podcasts that we're doing in his honor. And these conversations go back to really when I was an undergraduate, actually studying with him at St. Mary's College. And then personally, I followed him to the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology, where he was also teaching. So a few of us sort of took that track to sort of follow Father Owen Carroll uh, into grad school. And uh, this conversation that we're going to bring you today, it's it's a really special one for me. Um, As I remember being there personally, I remember my eyes being open to many things. And so this is, uh, oh my gosh, I'm dating myself, but at least 15 years ago, I think it was probably my last year of undergraduate studies at St. Mary's College or shortly thereafter. I can't really remember, but this is a conversation, uh, just taking place in Father Carroll's dining room, uh, on the subject of being and loving in St. Thomas. You'll hear voices from a few friends of ours, including one you might recognize, the great Brian Long, and then another friend of ours, Tim. So hello, Tim, if you're listening. Uh, And this is a great conversation with Father Owen Carroll. You're going to hear how good of a teacher he is and really some great insights. So uh, more on Father Carroll in subsequent episodes. 
quick reminder, housekeeping stuff, uh, classes kick off for the Magnus Fellowship next week. They are completely full with a waiting list. But if you're interested in doing something like this down the road, please apply for the Magnus Fellowship. It's all completely free. And jump in the next set of classes that we will be announcing soon. That's at magnusinstitute.org. So thanks again for listening. I really wanted to thank you for that. It does mean a lot to us. Also, if you want to join the conversation, uh, if this is your thing, you can follow us on Twitter at Magnus Podcast. And uh, we really do appreciate most of you hear about this podcast and about this fellowship by word of mouth. So thank you for sharing it with your friends. Thank you for your positive reviews. It really is encouraging to our team. So here's Father Owen Carroll on love and being, sorry, being and loving in St. Thomas. Please do enjoy this. Two that just stands by itself. And it's thoroughly understood. And if, but if I say two plus, what do you ask? Two plus what? Yeah. Now you see where the plus is uh, moving the entire two toward something else of its same kind. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> is that kind number? It, it, well, won't it have to be number? Sure. Because I can't say two plus two plus pineapple pineapples <laughs> or chocolate. Sure. Or it just wouldn't would, add up. Wouldn't make sense. <laughs> but if I say two, two plus two, the plus is uh, taking this, the second two, into the first two and making a unity of them. So then uh, it issues forth, emanates uh, into equals four. <clears throat> Um, now, just taking the first way, I'm not going to go into the details of the demonstration, to speak d- descriptively. <clears throat> We're looking at a moving being, that is, fire moving wood uh, to burn and become ashes. Um, and Aquinas is uh, trying to show that uh, in the first part of the demonstration that uh, no no being moves itself so he eliminates that so then being uh, um, a moved being is is always necessarily moved by another now so the the Latin word is motus. So the motus then has as its constitutive meaning by another. So far, <clears throat> but uh, you can't go in an infinite series because otherwise this one would not be moving. There, uh, so the, therefore, one must conclude that there is another. Um, that is a first mover with the very important qualification not moved 
by another. Are we on? Oh. And, uh, and this we call God. Now you see, when we get to the term of the demonstration, there is just this, it seems almost this pinpoint of truth that is established. Uh, and it's established in the uh, conclusion that there must be an, uh, a first actually moving one not moved by another. So another kind of being that is not like fire or wood or a hand moving a stick, as is another example, a, a totally different being. <clears throat> but all we know is, is that this being is. But it's like a little pinpoint of truth to begin with. <clears throat> now, when we have established that this being is, what's the next question? What is it? What is it? Now, you see, that little uh, initial pinpoint of truth, there is a first moving being not moved by another, well, somebody like Gabriel Marcel, who was a pretty, pretty intelligent guy, one of the major existentialists, and um, highly respected by everyone, uh, he sort of dismissed the proofs because he said they didn't really do anything to him. Or people would say, yes, there's that demonstration, but so what? You see, they had some expectations that the knowledge of God was going to be already uh, completely beatifying. It was as if God was going to have appeared to them and start uh, every transformation that would be, be needed. But so going from this little speck of truth, and then when you ask what, now going from it is to what is it, there is a desire to know the is more fully. And that's the very important thing. <clears throat> we know the truth. There's that being which is. But to know what it is in itself is, a, is not a knowing it's a desire. It's an intellectual desire. It's a desire that's following on the form of what is known. You see, this is the... <coughs> and that is sacred doctrine. So the, the relation of all of this to the... Um, preambles and all of that that we discussed, oh. um, um, which is the knowledge of God, which is the beatitude of man. But it's, uh, as you know, when we said two plus, 
soon as you ask what, there's an intellectual desire to know what is known more fully. Shall I repeat that? Yeah, yeah. So, to, so if we just say two plus, <clears throat> or even uh, another two, two plus two, you see that movement forward to know more fully the truth that's already known. That's the uh, intellectual appetite desire. Um, in many ways, it's the will in modern terminology. It's the voluntas. Because it's on that spiritual level. <clears throat> so the, the, the movement... From here, the, the, it's, the it's, fire burning the wood. It's set in motion... Um, by an apprehension. Yes. Yeah. We know Which that, we call the, the knowing. Yeah. The uh, initial knowing. We know that this fire is burning this piece of wood and these ashes are coming out of the wood. But uh, <clears throat> there is that level of knowing. It's In many ways it begins with, you might simply say, uh, sensible knowledge. But then uh, there's always... A, one can look at the fire and see it burning wood. And a lot of people, a lot of humans have looked at it and looked at it and looked at it and never moved on from that. The purposes were, were more than likely practical rather than speculative. But it's the very fire burning the very wood that uh, draws us into its implications. And so the, um, there is that first knowing of it on the sensible intellectual level. And for a lot of people, these are, um, they've never been able to differentiate. <clears throat> um, but then as soon as we say that the implications, uh, something is always moved by another, how far in that line can the mind move? And the mind will, uh, does, well, not all minds will do it. You know, there's the example of, of poor Bertram uh, Russell. Um, he, his father, when Bertie was um, 13, when Bertie was 13, his father uh, spoke to Bertie about the, the first way and went through the whole thing and when the, the father got to the end of it uh, Bertie's answer was yes, but who moved God? which really means he didn't understand the demonstration probably his father didn't either uh, I think one of the characteristics of the five ways is their extraordinary simplicity that uh, um, I think Aquinas may have presented in too great a hurry and maybe in too succinct a way, but he, but then to his defense, he knew that he would be explicitating 
those five ways through the entirety of the Summa, because they come up even in the the third part on Christ. Can you explain, as if you were Bertie's father, what you would have said to him? I mean, because that's a common that's a common misstep when people hear the five ways. Why why isn't the first mover part of the chain? Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, if you take something like Kant, you see, uh, uh, on a very abstract level, uh, he uh, um, would have had something very akin to it which he ultimately rejects. But when he gets to the, shall we say, the first mover, that's not his language, um, he he has the difficulty that in going through the series, that the, the f- first um, moving being not moved by another would be part of the series and yet beyond it. Now, you see, that would imply that uh, Kant wasn't able to get out of the series. Right. And and that, I think, is because um, most of us are just simply caught on the uh, uh, sensible level, picture level. Um, but, uh, you see, with uh, Aquinas, but he doesn't quite make it sufficiently evident at least in the five ways. There's another play uh, in the first way. Uh, there's a, a reference, uh, I think in question 29 of the Prima Parts, he's talking about motus movement, and um, he says it concerns all generables and corruptibles, uh, but it, it's, a move, it's a movement from uh, non-essay, ad essay from non-being to being, but then that puts it on a totally non-perceptual, non-sensible level. You can't even imagine it, because if it's going from non-being, you can't imagine non-being. You can't sense it either. So there is this transition from sensation and the inner senses, imagination particularly, to intellection that um, most of us never make or make in very, very imperfect ways. Uh, With uh, Bertram Russell, um, I read that story that I gave you. Uh, I'd read it in his uh, autobiography, which he wrote when he was 45, which is a bit presumptuous to write your autobiography at uh, uh, 45. Um, But then I heard a TV uh, interview with him, and somebody asked him about uh, uh, why would he be an atheist. And so he told this story about his father and that. So he was about 92 or 4 during the TV interview. uh, interview, and I was so struck by his language that I went back to the autobiography, and you see, about forty-five years later, he's using the same language. It's almost verbatim yeah. uh, from the age of thirteen, 
So then one has to ask, what really was blocking him? He never grew. Well, blocking him with his father to not understand his father or or ask, uh, he, well, he did see something, but the questions really had to be posed about, uh, some sort of question had to be posed about the, the first mover. But uh, I think it, it explain why the first mover, why there can be, a, there has to be a first mover that isn't movable, that isn't moving. Isn't moved by another. What you see, the first evidence that poses the question is, here's a being, the wood, that is being moved by another. It can't be the wood moving itself, because the wood doesn't have any act of fire to itself. So then um, what is moving it? Well, the fire is moving it. And then the impossibility of going on in a series, what's moving the fire? Uh, uh, the, um, the the question is always to explain why is this modus moved by another? Um, uh, how come, what is the ultimate implication of that another? And uh, it has to be that uh, if it's going to be moved by another, you're just going to go on and on and on. But that the answer to the evidence is because this fire is actually moving this wood, that uh, something then must be moving the fire to be moving the wood. Then then the question comes up, what is that which is moving the fire? We have to say that it can't be moving because it's moved by another. It must be of a, that character of being that it, it is itself not moved by another. Fire? No, that the that which is moving the fire can't be... If it's moved by another, then you, you can go on in a whole series. But what we've got to explain is, how is it that the fire, this actually burning fire, um, is it moving itself? It's evident it's not moving itself. Right. Uh, uh, it must be moved by another. Then... What is that other? If it's going to be moved by another, it's like fire and like wood. But if it's not moved by another, then uh, it's a completely different kind of being. And that being we call God. And that being we call God. What's your problem? We do explain why it's necessary that the first being isn't because, you, because you'll never ex you'll never be able to explain how the fire moves the wood. You'll, there'll only be an infinite series. This is Aristotle's third man argument. Yeah, I understand. In, in Alpha. because in fact you'll never know anything. 
And it's not only a question of knowing. This fire would not be in movement of burning, and the wood wouldn't be in the uh, the movement of being burnt. Yeah. So. So there'd be no reality. Right. Exactly. But yeah. that's that's that's, that's what the, we need to teach because to, yeah. because that's that's what I was saying before. Modus for Aristotle is this movement from non-being to being. Yes. Whereas. Uh, in the Aristotelian analysis, it's the interaction of matter and form on the level of substance. Right. And the question of uh, non-being never arises for Aristotle. Because you you can't conceive of many without conceiving of one, without conceiving of the first thing. No, that's putting it all on the level of knowledge. But doesn't it have to be... We cannot conceive of it because the wood and the fire... Are not uh, uh, are not that way. It, these are the actualities, and they have a certain interaction. And they, if you begin to question what is their real interaction, uh, you've got to come to a, a being that is not like them. That is not moved by another. Do you remember? This will be probably new for you. Or I'll ask you the question. Have you heard this before? The the first mover. No, no, the tapping. Oh, oh, uh, tapping. Have you heard this before? Yes. Have you heard this before? Have you heard something? like this before, similar. I've never heard you actually tap, but I've heard I've heard tapping. Yeah, may, but that... Might, uh, might not be you tapping. No, but I was asking, have you heard this before? Yes. No, but you're, you've answered, yes, I've heard tapping before. But I wasn't asking you if you've heard tapping before. I've, I've been asking you, have you heard this Good answer. That's the answer. You're well on your way. <laughs> but now you see, it's a, now <clears throat> has it ever ex- existed before? Something like it. Something like it has in your uh, memory and knowledge. But today, on March twentieth at two thirty p.m. Well, so this is the first time I've heard Father Carroll. That <laughs> you've heard this yes. the tapping. Yes. <clears throat> so it's uh, never existed before. Will it exist again? No. No. Perfect answer. Perfect metaphysical answer. Um, <clears throat> the um, so the there is something unique to this, new, unique, um, uh, has never existed before, won't exist again. That's the level that we have to look at the fire burning the wood, or any of the examples of the uh, um, Aquinas in the Summa. And uh, so in some ways, though he's always doing it himself, referring to Augustine or Venice or Aristotle and that, um, that's not really where his, uh, where his intellect is focused. It's actually, he's not focusing his intellect. 
It's his intellect is being focused by the actual tapping in the same way that the fire burning the wood is focusing uh, him into its mode of being or their mode of being. Is it possible to conceive of moving being ad infinitum? Is it, what do you think? I think it's possible to conceive of it. Well, you can set up a hypothesis. Right. What does that mean, John? Moving being <laughs> but uh, an eternal, an eternally moving being. No, no, no. Well, what, what does ad infinitum mean? I don't know what that means. To to infinity, right? So that there's always that there's always something making something move, right? And that's that was Russell's problem. Well, who moved God? Yeah. Right. And and, and he couldn't get off that level. He couldn't get off that level, but he wasn't speaking nonsense. Right. Well, no, you see, uh, there is a big analysis in Hegel's phenomenology of mind on what he calls false infinity. Oh. And uh, that, that would be a false infinity. You see, it's on a quantitative level. Right. Um, the, uh, you know, I think there is something similar in modern physics uh, that uh, the... Uh, the divi- quantitative division going down, particularly on the level of time, uh, the time of the physicists, that uh, you can always, uh, in hypothesis, subdivide whatever quantity is left. So that uh, with the enormous refinements of machinery and things like that, they can get down into the, uh, you know, uh, 10 to the uh, 100th uh, power of the the first second. Uh, So they're they're saying they're always getting closer and closer to the time of the the Big Bang and the uh, first creation. I could walk to that door and never get there. Well, it's the old old thing of Zeno from the pre-Socratics. But I think those are uh, hypothetical questions that can clarify certain levels of understanding. But uh, to erect these hypotheses into actual conditions and or actual beings is, I would agree with, uh, well, though Hegel isn't discussing these examples, I'd uh, agree with the term false infinity. It's the same thing on quite a different level. The uh, the plurality or infinity of other universes. Right. Uh, How would we ever know? Well, we know that there is. N- it's not possible in actuality, but people put it up as a hypothesis. But it's easier. It's easier to believe that. To believe that, oh, yes. that uh, it is to yeah. acknowledge the first mover. It is, in a se- because uh, the um, it's sort of all on a picture level. Right. So my you, you just put it. Yeah. My question is how how would you logically manifest the necess- the necessity of the first mover logically? Because uh, otherwise, uh, the, the actually existing fire burning this actually existing wood would not 
be in the act of burning and being burnt. It, you wouldn't have that reality in there in front of you, present to your senses. So unless it would be that, this wouldn't exist. Nothing would exist. Father, well, I oftentimes find myself falling into the error of asking the same question as Russell and saying, asking myself, like, who moved God? Well, and and the only thing I can think of is is perhaps kind of what you were talking about, like parallel universe, where like perhaps that's the reality. And, and I, I hate to say like there's more than one reality because I don't believe it. But I, I, I talk to people and they say like, what if it's like uh, this is all we we're, we're our brains are wired to know, and we're we're we stop at that. But if, if in reality there's something higher, yeah. And how but, uh, how do you, how do you argue against that? It, uh, you see. They have to come to a non-perceptual, non-sensible level of understanding. Now, Augustine, for instance, uh, will say um, one of his spiritual exercises, asking people to uh, consider love. Now, does love have a color, shape, size? But it is. Or just, uh, well, there, there are some others. Um, the, uh, let's, uh, this isn't quite uh, Augustine's example. Actually, his example is 7 plus 3 equals okay. 10. There's another famous uh, addition in Kant, 7 plus 5 equals Twelve for the twelve categories, uh, the way he puts them together. But for Augustine, you see the number seven, the number three, are numbers of perfection, and so ten is uh, the sum of perfection. Now let's say we four understand seven plus three equaling ten. So can't we say that uh, our minds are in agreement? about 7 plus 3 equaling 10. Where do our minds agree? There's some sort of union? Our minds agree in the is, in the equals. In the equals? Or in the 10? Or in the 7 plus 3 equals 10? Where are our minds meeting? You've already given the answer, but you're not uh, specifying. Aren't our minds meeting in this truth of addition? Where is that? Is it just in my mind, your your head, or you see, we've come to a spiritual level. Yeah. That that's the answer to your question, is that no matter how many men are behind the curtain, mm-hmm. you know, no matter we might just be all dreaming or you know. Yeah. Uh, you can't. You can't move beyond the is. Right? What is God? The God. The is the being no, of anything that is. You can't. You can't. You can't imagine something that isn't isness. That, that isn't being. Right. Yeah. And as long as our God's a God of being, you know, with uh, this is going back some thirty, thirty-five years, maybe even more, forty years or so. They were first discovering the quasars. And I think it was 
The first big one that they spoke about was Quasar 318, I think. No, that's not important. And when they did the spectrographic analysis of the light coming from that quasar, uh, which was um, determined to be at the, uh, the age of the existing uh, world, uh, though they gave the figure of something like 12 or 13 um, billion light years, a little bit of stretch of temporality. Um, when they analyzed the light coming from it, one of the discoveries was that it contained a carbon particle that is identical with the carbon particle in any of our living cells. So the huge unity uh, from, let's say, the, the quasar at the extremity of everything that they could find. Now they find found some older things, but you see it already showed that everything that was was one unity. And that's what people won't, uh, even the scientists won't accept that. They, they want these other worlds. Do you know the novel of um, C.S. Lewis, Paralandra, or Voyage to Venus. I've, I've never read it. It's uh, some beautifully written things, but it's uh, some people land on a planet somewhere. I forget how they get there. And uh, it's a planet where there are intelligent beings, but uh, who have uh, never fallen. Uh, so it's a world that is not subject to the corruption of man's original sin. Um, but, uh, you know, they're constantly looking for life on other planets, or even the possibilities of water and whatever. Um, the, uh, there's an underlying attempt then to disprove everything about Catholicism or everything about Christ. Because then, if there are these intelligent creatures and they're not fallen, and they're not redeemed, then he's not Lord of all, all creation. Uh, Lewis isn't doing that. But, uh, the, uh, well, that, that shift again from the sensible level, uh, it's in terms of seeing everything with a freshness and newness and originality, uh, on the level of being and nothingness. And we very often do that uh, with uh, you know, beauty. Uh, I had a friend um, who was uh, really, in fact, two friends, so extraordinarily beautiful that uh, uh, one of them um he had such coloration on his face. His skin, besides the shape of his features, was so rich and colorful. He was a very, very healthy fellow. Um, that uh, I remember introducing him to people, and uh, after five or ten minutes, usually if there was a woman, uh, she would ask, are you using cosmetics? And he'd say, no, no. And, uh, oh, I don't believe you. 
and I see maybe they had met ten minutes before she'd draw her fingernail down his cheek and look and there was no cosmetic <laughs> and uh, if there was a male around they'd be looking over the shoulder just because uh, they were as intrigued and he had perfectly shaped teeth of sort of dazzling whiteness I mean this was a healthy fellow and uh, they they wouldn't believe that they were his teeth. You know, those are false teeth. He loved being talked about. So he'd go through this any time. And uh, I'd actually see people tapping his teeth to verify that they were his. Now there's an amazement, a wonder. And uh, so I think it happens to all of us. You see someone or something of uh, almost stunning beauty. Uh, that just draws you into it. That's the level. You're not. Uh, you're not going to just be talking about the fire and the wood, but uh, you have to be talking about the fire and the wood in their terms and their implications. And most people were not taught to do that. In fact, we're taught the opposite to talk in theories, hypotheses, talk science, sort of, levels of imagination. Uh, you, you know, I have these fire, these, uh, no, no, the roses here. And, uh, they're not in prime condition. And uh, I'll keep them a number of further days. Because they have a beauty, even in that corrupting state, dying state, that uh, is just uh, transfixing. But you see, we're not uh, trained or encouraged to uh, to consider that. You see, all the white parts, well, when they're really fresh, they're practically all red. And it's only as they start going down that the back side of the the petal uh, starts showing more and more. But you know, even in dying, it, it, it's got its own glory of beauty. Uh, so that that is, I think, for us as Catholics, has to be our the primary light of looking at everything and anything uh, in the light of Christ's glory. Um, but we're not even trained into that as Catholics. Uh, I'm going to save that to my to my notes real quick. Can you say it one more time? That there's Oh, well, somebody else better say it. I never remember. In beauty. There's, there's beauty. That we, we have to look. And the, the Victorians had a marvelous word, theodidact. Uh, that is, it's really someone who is learned about theology, but is not really a theologian. Well, one could say a philo, I don't think it's in the OED, but one could talk about a philodidact, that is one that is 
talks about but isn't a philosopher. The uh, something of a an anecdote that uh, might manifest some of this. I met a young man from he had just graduated from Columbia University as a doctor of physics, and so a pretty high level training. And I said to him, "Well, are the, uh, how many universities are fighting over you? Because it's pretty hard to find a highly trained physicist." Uh, so where are you going to go? He said, "Oh no, no, I'm going for at least six months to North uh, to uh, I think it was Chapel Hill." I said, "What will you do there?" He said, "Well, no, there's a chapel of perpetual adoration, and I'm going to go there for at least six months and just spend my time in the chapel." So he was telling that to one of his uh, fellow students, who was a Muslim, and why Muslim want to know and so the young man explained everything about Christ's real presence. And the Muslim said to him with something of a baited voice, you know, if it were I in that chapel, I would never be able to leave. You know, so the, uh, the, the seizing power of a Christ resurrected and Eucharistically present. Uh, but uh, that's not the level that we we live on. Uh, and, you know, something that uh, wherever Christ is, Eucharistically present, uh, what is his first main activity uh, as the Eucharist or as Christ God. What's his first major activity after recognizing the, the Father? Isn't it? Breathing the Spirit. Bringing to life. Yes. Uh, giving the giver of life the, the Holy Spirit. Uh, and is that only given when between the reciprocal love between the Father and the Son? Uh, yes. Yeah. Jesus looking yeah. back at the yeah. Father. Yeah. Well, um, my Father will love whoever loves me. And then there's another passage. Uh, and he will come and we will take up our dwelling in him who loves me. But uh, when have you heard a priest uh, preach that? Uh, uh, but maybe I'll just... Uh, you see this one little point, uh, and it's on such an intellectual level. It's the result of a very necessitated demonstration that uh, uh, there be uh, a first moving being, not moved by another. But uh, the more that one then desires that, but uh, the um, the way that uh, so many people nowadays seem to present it is that, uh, and they call themselves uh, um, Augustinians, but uh, they're falsifying Augustine. You see, 
there can't be this desire. Uh, let's say here's the knower, and he knows there is this being, and then begins to desire to know that being more fully. Well, that's, uh, I think, a very important phrase, more fully, that the, <clears throat> there is the knowing, and the knowing has to persist through all the desiring. They keep saying nowadays that love goes beyond knowing. It doesn't. Love can't be focused, specified, actuated in any way unless it's through the original knowledge. And the desire is still once is a desire to have the first knowledge presented most fully. So here, here and now, the desire goes out. And they always say, beyond the known. But it, uh, it sort of falsifies things. It can't go out beyond the, know, the already given knowing, the form that uh, is going to have the uh, on-following inclination. That's what we're talking it about. It can't go beyond the knowing any more than it can go beyond the being. Yeah. Yeah. Which it can't. Yeah, but nowadays, you know, love, love, love. And uh, what is it? Uh, that's one of the most dangerous modern uh, fabrications there is. Is love any, any more than the, the desire or the, the voluntas to know? Yeah. Is that what love is? The, that's the intellectual desire. That's uh, Aquinas' principal term intellectual desire and another term of his is voluntas when we talk about will we're always talking about what uh, I think was first to be found in the Quranic thing it was like Avicenna and Averroes but um, will was not important for these thinkers uh, any more than it was important for Aristotle and uh, maybe more important for Plato but uh, uh, intellectual desire cannot be separated from the the form of knowing. It, the desire is really the inner inclination of the form to become more fully itself. So, how will the this form of knowing? that sets up this inclination, this intellectual desire to know most fully, where is the perfection of the knower going to be found? In the is of this... Initial apprehension. Initial apprehension of the being who is not moved by another. So this tendency to separate the knowing and the will and oppose them is primarily characteristic of uh, the, uh, well, I'm going to say the modern uh, German idealists. Can you know without loving? No. You can't know anything without already loving it. Blake's poem... Uh, to see heaven in a grain of sand and uh, 
infinity in a flower. Have you ever heard that? You should try maybe looking it up. Blake, William Blake. Uh, but at least the language is sort of good, uh, initially. Uh, well, Augustine has something similar. And I, I think it's uh, at the end of the De Trinitate. I've been meaning to look it up. He's gone through an almost unparalleled investigation into the nature of the Trinity. The only one that would be uh, fuller is Aquinas. Um, um, and maybe a Jesuit who lived in Montreal who wrote some very, very good things. Barusa. He ended up in Rome at the Gregorian. Um, and then there are a couple of the women saints. And they're practically all Carmelites. Uh, well, Avila, um, the little flower, Elizabeth of Dijon, but uh, not too much is explicitly developed. But in any case, the, um, um, the separation of knowing and willing starts with Duns Scotus, and then it becomes an opposition. And I think a good number of the important modern theologians are sort of infected by that. And I'll give you an example of one of Hans Urs von Balthasar. That is, these people tend to, instead of saying man is the rational animal and the activity that constitutes the rationality is the syllogistic argumentation, which I wouldn't, which is primarily metaphysical. Um, uh, it's a, an adding of further being within the knowing of the knower to be more fully itself. Um, but they would prefer to say man is the free animal that man is really specified by his freedom. But it, there can't be any sort of freedom for man unless there is first the knowing acts. Father, uh, uh, what about the damned? Isn't there a great deal of knowing without loving going on in hell? Yeah, and that's really what constitutes their that's ultimate what punishment. That's damned, yeah. yeah. So they knew without loving. No. no, because that's that's the punishment. They're they're knowing without they will, know with, with the disorientation will. of the will. Yeah. As John puts it in the first letter, um, we do not know, brethren, what we are, what we shall be, but we know that when He appears to us, that is Christ, uh, we will be like Him, be like Him, because. We will see him as he is. See, not there'll be the consequent love, the inclination, uh, but uh, it will be. We will see him as he is. Or is it in John that uh, uh, the uh, heaven is it a heavenly life is to know the Father and the One whom He has sent? Uh, 
So, but all of this emphasis on freedom, and you can see then what, in so many ways, actuates or moves, uh, in a, I think, of quite a false way, so many of the uh, Protestant groups. Right. So, so if if the damned experience knowledge without love, um, isn't it possible to? To know without loving. Yeah, yes, yeah. Uh, even the devils knew that Christ was Christ. Right. So you can know. So no, knowledge is possible without, yeah. without love. But, without love. But you see the contradiction that that's going to put into any of the intellectual beings, angels included. Yeah. The contradiction, interior contradiction of their being yeah. between their knowing and the natural inclination to know more fully. Wasn't that uh, that Sartre's problem in the garden? That, that uh, I was going to say, that, uh, that, contra- that insistence on man as the free animal, as right. in Sartre, um, is uh, so characteristic of the modern thought. Uh, Father, does that verse that you quoted, does that speak to both the, the blessed and the damned? Where we, where we are now, we don't we know. Well, where we yes, become. because... Uh, some theologians, and I think uh, rightly, will say that uh, it's not so much that Christ will condemn us, he will confirm the sentence that we have already passed on ourselves. It's a letter or not. Uh, well, am I worthy to be in him with all of the others, or am I not worthy? Or do I want that, or do I refuse that? It's like what uh, what Saint Thomas says to his sister when she asks what's necessary for for sanctity, and he says, "Will it desire it?" Yeah, that's his answer. That's all that's necessary. I'd like to see what word he used. Ah, yeah. Because in modern terms, uh, "will it" means it's your making it happen. No, no, exactly. Power. Yes, but uh, if he said. Desire it, choose it. You see, with these modern thinkers, will is essentially the free act. But for Aquinas, in terms that we were just saying, that whenever you know this being, and you say it's there, it's true, it's good, maybe even in a complex act without singling out each of these aspects. As soon as you've said that, there's a natural natural inclination to um, be more fully with it. That's love. That's the first act of the will. Uh, So all the different terms like complacency, convenience, well, there's about a ten different synonyms in that article. You'll find them all. Or if you look up Crow uh, in his articles, there'd be the reference in that uh, Vala book. Okay. I think I must. Kintyre. Uh... This has been a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated, all rights reserved, copyright 2020. For more, visit magnusinstitute.org. See you next time.